Welcome back, everyone, and thank you for joining us for today's podcast from Dublin First Baptist Church in Dublin, North Carolina. We hope you'll be encouraged today as you listen to our message. For more information, please visit our website at www.dublinfbc.org. That's www.dublinfbc.org. Now let's join the congregation of Dublin First Baptist as we listen to the preaching of God's Word. As uh, we turn to Hebrews 11, please turn to Hebrews 11. We're going to focus on verses 8 to 16 this morning. And I'd like to meditate uh, together with you on the gospel of Jesus Christ as it's been presented so far, but specifically how you and I appropriate or apply that gospel to our lives. All right, the gospel is a beautiful thing, and we've heard about it, but unless it impacts us, unless we interact with it, it is just a beautiful thing. All right, and so we're going to look at an example of that here, Hebrews 11, 8 to 16. If you're, a, if you're a Christian, I know I've been in a position before when I've heard something like, we're going to focus on the gospel, and I'm like, well, I already have that. And um, I kind of had a tendency to go on autopilot during the message. I'd encourage you not to, um, because if the gospel is what the unsaved desperately need, the gospel is what the saved desperately need to continue on in their relationship with Jesus Christ. And I think we'll see that here uh, and have that truth reinforced in our heart through this passage. Uh, recent events in this world, um, I'm on Facebook and some of you are my friends and if you're not, I'm, it's not because I don't want you to be, all right, but on social media you see these things. Um, everybody that sends me one, boop, I, I, I'll let you, yeah, I want to be your friend. Um, but I see these things and I see on the news, uh, we're kind of living in a rough time, aren't we? I mean, the last two months... Abortion, that wicked and vile practice, has uh, gone to its logical conclusion of infanticide, which is honestly what it's always been. Um, but it's just now clear to even those who, who don't understand God's word that that's what it is. And we live in a time when mainline Protestant denomination is not only excusing sin, but ordaining people to ministry who are involved and unrepentant in that sin and take pride. I'll just leave it with that description there and that sin. And this is where we are. And it can be a time that at a point seems hopeless. And that's expressed sometimes by us. But we don't have hope. We have a hope. We've been singing about it all morning. And we have a hope, and that is Jesus Christ and the gospel message. And so before we read this, I'd like to just, I kind of tried to make a short definition of the gospel. That's really difficult. Um, but let me just read what I've got here. And, and if you think there should be additions, you can, um, you can tell me later that I missed something major. But uh, listen, the gospel is this. Man, because of sin, is deserving of God's wrath through physical and spiritual death which means separation from God forever in hell. That's what Scripture teaches. But God, amen? Not two beautiful words, because <laughs> uh, that's a terrible thought. But, but God sent his son Jesus Christ into our world to be born as a man. He came and lived among us, experiencing the things you and I experience, understanding why mankind might be hopeless at times. Fully God and fully man, he came to live and to die for you and me in our place and to be raised from the dead thank you autumn and Alyssa. my redeemer lives 
he, became, he, he came and he died and he was then raised from the dead and then he ascended into heaven and he's going to come back again. And all of this, this truth we just talked about, this is the gospel of Jesus Christ and it is available to you and to me by faith. It is ours by faith. All who trust in what Jesus has done to pay the penalty to God for our rebellion against God have this promise and it is ours by faith. We'll notice that. Let's read it. Let's get in the text. Hebrews 11, 8 to 16. All right, verse 8 says, By faith, Abraham, when he was called to go out into a place which he should, after receive for an inheritance, obeyed, and he went out, not knowing whither he went. By faith, he sojourned in the land of promise, as in a strange country, dwelling in tabernacles with Isaac and Jacob, the heirs with him of the same promise. For he looked for a city which hath foundations, whose builder and maker is God. Through faith also Sarah herself received strength to conceive seed and was delivered of a child when she was past age, because she judged him faithful who had promised. Therefore sprang there even of one, and him as good as dead, so many as the stars of the sky and the multitude, and as the sand which is by the seashore innumerable. These all died in faith not having received the promises, but having seen them afar off and were persuaded of them and embraced them and confessed that they were strangers and pilgrims on the earth. For they that say such things declare plainly that they seek a country. And truly, if they had been mindful of that country from whence they came out, they might have had opportunity to have returned. But now they desire a better country, that is, a heavenly. Wherefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God for he hath prepared for them a city. Let's pray for a moment. Lord, thank you for your word. It is precious. It is how we know who you are and who we are. It is how we know what you have done for us and how we are to respond to that and what you expect of us. There's life and hope in your word. I pray that this morning you would open our eyes to see the wondrous truths that are in. More importantly, God, I pray that you would write this on our hearts, that when we leave this gathering together this morning, we will have uh, the strength to act on the faith that we have. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, Hebrews 11 is a pretty incredible chapter. I'd encourage you, if you have time today or later this week, to read the whole thing in its entirety. It's kind of like a Hall of Fame. Has anybody been to, like, the Baseball Hall of Fame? That's in Ohio. Or football? No? Nobody? What, what about the UNC? They have a Hall of Fame up at UNC, right? Tire Hills? Somebody might have been there. This is the Hall of Fame for, um, for faith in the Bible. And what the... What God has uh, the human author of Hebrews do here is list everybody who is notable in Scripture for the life that they lived by faith. We're going to see that word a bunch of times here in these eight verses, but also throughout the entire section. And um, just as an emphasis that this is not just a message of the gospel and what saving faith is for unbelievers, I do want you to look at the last verse of chapter 10. All right, chapter 10, verse 39 says, But we are not of them who draw back unto perdition, but of them that believe to the saving of the soul. That's us, Christians. All right, that is really who this is written to, but uh, it also applies to those who have not yet come to saving faith in Jesus Christ. They haven't begun their relationship with him just yet. 
Saving faith sees. That's the first thing I think we really need to notice. God here gives us in eight, nine verses, all right, an incredible, remarkable, clear and concise definition of what saving faith is. I think it's important because sometimes faith can seem kind of ambiguous, like it's a ethereal concept. I mean, some people might use the term faith, like what faith are you? Meaning, are you Presbyterian, Catholic, Mormon? What faith are you? That's not what faith is being described as. Here it's very specific. God says, and he wants us to know it because this is how we come to know him and this is how we grow in him. So he's going to give us a very clear definition of what it is to remove any of that ambiguity. Saving faith always sees. Verse 8, by faith, we going to notice that, right? by faith, Abraham, when he was called to go out into a place I want to pause there for just a second, right? Because it's by faith, Abraham, when he was called out. And before we go on into what our response is supposed to be to, to God's call, we have to understand God called. So can we take a moment and pause and wonder and worship and realize who is the initiator and who is the originator of this relationship that we enjoy by faith? All glory goes to him. All right? He called us out. He called Abraham out. Has he called you out? I hope so. And if he hasn't, he is. He's calling you. If you are here today and we're studying this together, this is a call for you to come to faith in Jesus Christ if you have never done so before. If you have, this is a call to continue, and we'll, we'll see that later. But A.W. Pink, a, a famous um, theologian and pastor, I like to read his works back in the uh, early, late 1800s or so, he said, it was not Adam uh, who sought God, it was God who sought Adam, and this has been the order ever since. Amen? All right, what was Adam doing? Hiding, trying to camouflage himself with poorly sewn together uh, leaves. All right, and God, no, God said, He came for him, He came for him, and He came for you, and He came for me, and the call is. Uh, from him, and we give him all the glory for this. But notice also here in verse 8, um, not just that, but also that it says that when Abraham was called by God by faith, what did he do? It says he obeyed. He obeyed. All right, and throughout this entire chapter, we're going to really see that that is how faith is defined as obedience. You'll notice like action verbs. It says, by faith, so-and-so did this. By faith, so-and-so did this. By faith, they did this. And there's no separation in God's word between action, all right, that comes from faith and the faith itself. That's a misunderstanding on our part. It says he obeyed. By faith, Abraham, when he was called out to go into a place which he should after receive for an inheritance, obeyed. He went out. He didn't know where he went. So how does saving faith cease? He doesn't know where he's going. It's kind of difficult to understand what it's talking about there because it says he sees. It says he looked. Let's look at Hebrews 11.1. 1. It gives us a nice definition there that faith is the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen. Sometimes we think of faith or hope as being, um, man, I just really hope this happens. Desire, like I, I was hoping that NC State would win did not happen. <laughs> uh, Duke got it. But, um, that's, not, that's not this faith. That's not this hope. It is substantive. That's a really hard word to say. It has substance. 
all right? Uh, it's an evidence. It's something solid. It's concrete. We, we can see it, and then we'll describe that in a little bit here. God's Word describes it and gives us a great example from Jesus in the New Testament. So hold on just a second, right? But I do want to notice that it says uh, in verse 9 as well, it says, By faith he sojourned in the land of promise as in a strange country, dwelling in tabernacles with Isaac and Jacob, his son and his grandson, all right, the heirs with him of the same promise. We need to realize that um, he sojourned, it says, in the land of promise, not the land that he was promised. Because to Abraham, he was never promised a land. He was promised his descendants would have a land. But do you realize, we've studied this in Sunday school the last couple of months, did Abraham ever build a house there? No, he was dwelling in, King James says tabernacles, all right, tents. Very mobile, right? Never really putting down roots because he was following God. God didn't tell him exactly where he was going and what it was like. God said, go. And what did he do? He obeyed and he went. And it says he was a sojourner, right? He sojourned in the land of promise as in a stranger foreign country. He's like, this is not my home yet. This is where God told me to go and I'm here, but this is not it. This is not the fulfillment of the promise right? Heaven and an eternal relationship with God, that was the fulfillment of the promise. Next, subsequent verses here describe that. He was looking for a city or a land or a country that was eternal, not earthly. And there's important truths we can learn from that. Tents don't have foundations. They do have pegs, and those are important. Right, Krista? Right. I won't go into that, but you do have pegs. to keep it where it's supposed to be. But, um, they don't have foundations. And Abraham's tent didn't have foundation. In fact, Isaac's tent didn't have foundation. And Jacob's tent didn't have foundation. It wasn't until after they came out of Egypt and then had a 40-some-year detour that they actually went in and possessed the land. Something that Abraham never saw. Isaac and Jacob never saw the fulfillment of this promise here. Right? Tents don't have foundations. But what does? What has a foundation? Verse 10, he looked for a city which has foundations. Where do you think that city is? In heaven, right? Revelation 21, 14 talks about the new Jerusalem, and it will have 12 foundations. The apostles, named after the apostles. All right? Um, he's looking for a place that has foundations. Do you see this? It says he, he looked, and um, he saw. And saving faith does. It always sees. But he was looking not for Canaan. He realized when he was sojourning, through that land, this is not it. And he kept his eyes on who was his promise? God. All right? And he kept his eyes on the promise. And he kept his eyes on the promiser. It can be difficult sometimes when you know that that's an afar off thing. That's the terms used here. But he did that. He looked for a city which had foundations. Nothing else could distract him. All right, that's where his focus was. He looked through and over the fleeting pleasures of this world and the counterfeit promises of this world. He looked through and over them to the promiser and the promise and those solid joys that are his forever, that are ours forever by faith. Verses 11 and 12 is kind of neat. It's almost like a little interlude here where he doesn't switch characters, but he definitely adds one, right? He adds uh, Abraham's wife, Sarah, uh, to the mix here. And he says, through faith, 
Also, Sarah herself received strength to conceive seed, right? And she was delivered of a child when she was past age. Abraham, 100. Sarah, 90. Not, don't remember that happening since. It was a miracle of God, right? And she judged him faithful who had promised. God was faithful to keep that promise. You think Abraham had doubt when God was like, go, I'm telling you where to go. And I want you to go. I'm not going to really tell you where just yet. I'll get there. But you go, and you obey, and you follow me. And then he gets to this land, and he's like, this isn't it yet, and I'm going to keep staying in tents. In fact, I don't even own anything. The only thing I own is this little itty-bitty parcel where I can bury my wife, and one day I'll be buried. That's all this part of Canaan I own because I'm just a traveler here. I'm just a sojourner here. I'm just a pilgrim here. I've got a better city than I'm looking for. i got a better one that I'm fixing my eyes on. Do you think he had any doubts about that promise? Well, we know. We know from Scripture they had doubts. But you know, God is so gracious and loving that sometimes when there's that big thing that we're focusing on, right, that made a narrative of Scripture like that, if you trust Jesus Christ as your Savior, he will forgive your sins and give you eternal life. And at times that even might be difficult for us to believe. But isn't it beautiful how God sometimes fulfills other promises in your life to fuel your faith in that? Does God ever do that for you? He does it for me. He did it here for Abraham. I mean, he called Abraham to go out and didn't know where, just keeping his eyes on, on the Lord. And um, then he says, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to give you a, an heir, and heirs, really. And, and actually, all the peoples of the world are going to be blessed through you because the Messiah, Jesus Christ, is going to come from you. And he gives them these promises. And um, I know Abraham had doubts because right after that God promised Abraham that. Abraham said, well, I don't have a son, Lord. He's like, should I use my servant? He's been really faithful to me. All right, Eliezer, let's be a good, good person. And God says, no, that's not it. I'm going to give you a son. I promised you one. It was not very long after that that Abraham and, and Sarah tried to help God's promise out, if you know what I mean. And it wasn't much of a help. Right? And, but God fulfilled that promise to Abraham, and I'm sure that it fueled his his faith in these larger ones. And I, I know God's done that for me in my life. I realize that grace, his grace, is what uh, his promises are founded on and is what my faith is founded on, and it's honestly what my faith is fueled by. And doubt is not a place that you and I should stay, but I think we have to be real that uh, even in Scripture, people like Abraham, who are talked about as you know heroes of the faith, this section of Hebrews gives greater, um, the amount of verses describing Abraham is greater than anybody else. In Galatians and Romans and James, he's, he's listed as, if you want to know what faith is, Abraham. He's a friend of God. Not too many people have that description in Scripture, but he doubted at times. I don't think doubt's a bad thing. Just don't stay there. Charles Spurgeon said that uh, doubt is a foot poised, to go forward in faith or turn backward. That's all doubt is. It's a decision time for you. Don't stay there. If you stay there, you've already made a choice. You're not going forward, are you? All right, and that's what doubt is. But what we have to do is we're going to have to decide, are we going to believe God like Abraham did? Are we going to trust him? Are we going to renew that trust in the times we didn't trust him? That's a decision that we're asked to make. And a moment ago, I asked you, to think of times in your life when God has fueled 
uh, your faith in his promises by fulfilling his big promises by fulfilling maybe a smaller one or what you might consider small in your life. And there are times when the painful circumstances of life are so tangible, you know, it really it clouds our it clouds our judgment. And and what we need to break through that is to remember those. But even sometimes I have I have a trouble remembering what God's done in my life. Isn't that sad? That's how cloudy that painful circumstances can, can make my thought process. But do you know what I do have in case I can't think of anything right off the bat in my life where God has been faithful? I have 66 books of examples of how God has been faithful. And it's not very long after I start reading them that I'm like, oh yeah, now I remember how you've come through for me before. And now I have faith to believe that you're going to keep coming through because you know what? What is his track record like? Is it pretty perfect? That's 100% perfect. He always keeps his promises. And what a beautiful and glorious thing for us to have a God who is so gracious that he calls us to believe, but he even gives us grace to have that faith, to fuel it, and to power it through. He wants us to have faith in him. Let's look at verse 13. I think this is kind of the central and defining verse of this entire passage. I emphasized some words when I read it the first time. I'm going to do it again. Saving faith sees. Right? Verse 13. These all died in faith, not having received the promises, but having seen them afar off and were persuaded of them and embraced them and confessed they were strangers and pilgrims on the earth. Now to start off, it says these all died in faith. And I think it's important for us to realize what this is uh, describing here. Because yes, Abraham was a man who lived by faith, Sarah as well. But what did they also do? They died in faith. They didn't receive the promise of Canaan as their land. Their descendants did. Did they receive a better promise? They did. A home in heaven. A heavenly home. And that's what their eyes were fixed on. I think it's important for you and I to remember this, especially in a time in, um, in Christianity when false teaching is very prevalent regarding um, God's promises and how they apply to us. And I think it's important to realize that most, not all, but most of God's promises, especially in regard um, to his call to us to follow him by faith, are eternal. They're not temporal. They're not for the here and now. They're for home in heaven. Aren't you glad that they are? Where are you going to spend more time? You're going to spend a long time there, I hope. But that is what his promises are for. Not all of them. He gives us beautiful down payments. He gives us beautiful foretastes that his promises are true and real. We have the Holy Spirit. That's a beautiful foretaste of, of his presence forever that we'll enjoy one day in heaven. We have this, the community of faith, his church. This is a means of grace that um, you need to be a part of and you need to embrace and hold because it strengthens you. It strengthens your faith. There's beautiful things he gives us to make his promises very real and to fuel our faith. But the reality is, most of his promises are for something so much important than here and now. All right? Um, one of my favorite pastors, Paul Washer, says, Jehovah Jireh. Does anybody know what that means? My provider. It doesn't, it's not talking about Alexis. It's talking about a lamb. All right? He provided a lamb for you. And he will provide. He will provide all of your needs. But the focus there is on what you really need. So much more important. 
All right, in this verse, in verse 13, God gives us a clear and concise definition of what saving faith is. The first thing it says is that it sees. All right, and then it says that uh, it is persuaded, and then it says that it embraces, and then it confesses. All right, and this is what God's word tells us that saving faith is. There was a time not long after the church started in Acts that um, it got off a, li a little off course. And God's salvation by grace through faith was not preached as faithfully as it needed to be everywhere. And instead, works were added to the mix. And we've been going through James in, in the youth group, and uh, we have <clears throat> understood that our salvation is not faith plus works equals salvation. If we're going to use an equation, it is that faith equals salvation plus works. That's how God's designed it. Works don't belong over on that side. It's after the equal sign. All right. And um, but there was a time in, in, in Christendom or Christianity when that was not clear and that was not taught. And so God gave us this beautiful thing called the Reformation when people fought against that truth and they fought for the truth of God's word. And one of the most important things they did was remove ambiguity from the concept of faith. And they said that saving faith consists of three things. I'll go through this quickly because some of you might find it a little boring. I don't. I find it amazing that they did this and it lines up with verse 13. All right. They said that in order to have faith, you need to have knowledge. They use the Latin term notitia. You can't believe in something you don't know about, right? You have to have knowledge. The second thing that is required is you have to have uh, assent, or that you have to believe that it's true. It does no good to just know about something if you don't believe it's true. So that is the second step. Those are important steps, right? Notitia, knowledge, assensus, true. But they said you need a third one, and I would agree with them, because even in James, um, God tells us that, do you believe that there is a God, that God is one? Great, good on you. Guess who else does? Demons, Satan. <laughs> And, and definitely not someone who is saved. And so um, it's important that it goes beyond that. That might be what we might call head knowledge. Don't minimize head knowledge, all right? Um, it's, it's, uh, you won't be saved if it's only here. It has to get down here. But it can never get down here if it never got here. Does that make sense? All right, and so you have to have knowledge, and you have to believe that that knowledge is true, but there's a third step here, right? It said seen and persuaded in verse 13, but it also said embraced, and what the reformers called that was fiducia, all right? Uh, I only know one person here. I'm sure there's others that worked in a bank, all right? Miss Judy worked in a bank for a long time, but that word fiducia, um, we use that currently in the term fiduciary, Right? And it usually has aspects to banking or finance or law. All right? And Scott, this is a quote from your brother across the pond, uh, a Lord appellate judge all right, from England. And he said, what fiduciary is, what a fiduciary is, is someone, listen to this and sound, see if it doesn't sound like Jesus Christ. A fiduciary is someone who has undertaken to act for and on behalf of another person. That's Jesus. That's what he did for you and me. He acted for us. We deserve that cross. We deserve death. We deserve eternal separation from God. And it does so in circumstances which give rise to a relationship. That's a beautiful word. Of trust and confidence. That's from Lord Millet. Um, Lord, Judge 
Judge Lord of Appeal, UK, right? But it's a, it is a great description of what that means and what embrace means, because I think that's the one that we get fuzzy on. We, we might have head knowledge, but what does it mean to progress from there to there? And there has to be a progression if we are going to have saving faith as described here. They didn't just see, and they didn't just, uh, weren't just persuaded, but they actually embraced. When you think of embrace, what do you think of? It's just Valentine's Day, come on. What do you think of when you think of embrace? You get a big old hug, right? You get a hug. That's what it embraces. It's close. It's intimacy. It says, I want this. I need this. I don't want to let go of this. And that is what saving faith is described here as. All right? It says, I want that, and I need that, and that alone. And I'm so thankful that God has given us this verse and that the reformers have outlined it for us so that we don't have any question about what saving faith is. It's a faith that sees and it's a faith that says, once it sees, it says, yes, that is true. But it doesn't just stop there. It says, I need that, and it grabs it. And he actually gives us one extra word here that the reformers didn't speak about in their definition. It is that it is confessed. And what did they confess? That they were strangers and pilgrims. They said, this world has nothing for me. This is not my home. I'm fixing my eyes on you. I'm going to believe in your promise even though I can't see it, even though I won't receive it here and now. I will receive it one day. And that's worth anything, that's worth more than anything than this world can offer me. And that is what Abraham saw, said and believed. I like uh, Hebrews 11:6. before we start in verse 8. It gives us something that's kind of close to this. Maybe it's more of a summary. It's in two parts, right? It says, without faith, it's impossible to please God. This is God's chosen way to bring you to himself. He gives grace, but he requires faith from you. So without faith, it's impossible to please him. For he that comes to God, two things must occur. He must believe that he is, right? That's our knowledge and our sent, our notitia and our census, our seen and our persuaded. You've got to believe that he is. But again, that doesn't save us. Demons do that, according to James. All right, so what else do we need to do? We need to believe that, he's not only, that he not only is, but that he is a rewarder of those who diligently seek him. And so what we've described here is what saving faith is. This is, this is the response, maybe we could say, the response of saving faith. But from here on down, the next couple of verses, as we close, we'll see that saving faith seeks and saving faith savers. All right, these are more of the results of the saving faith that we have. And verse 14 says, For they say such things. What did they say? I'm a pilgrim here. I'm a sojourner here. I'm a stranger. This world is not my home. Verse 14 says, For they that say such things declare plainly that they seek a country. This is not true of you and I prior to salvation. Romans uh, 3 10 11 make it clear all have sinned come short of the glory of God there is no one that doeth good no one there is nobody that seeks God not until God intervenes through his gospel and through his church proclaiming the gospel and through his holy spirit moving on a person then they begin seeking but this is something that people who have saving faith who have seen and who have been persuaded and who have embraced and who have confessed this should be true of them he didn't just call you to go out he called you to go on Go on. Go on in the faith. That's what he's asking us here. We need to keep seeking him. In Isaiah 55, 6 and 7, it says, Seek the Lord while he may be found. Call on him while he is near. Let the wicked forsake his way and the unrighteous man his thoughts and let him return to the Lord. To me, that's describing somebody who's been with the Lord. 
All right? And he says there are a time when you and I can um, forget what our eyes are supposed to be focused on, and maybe we seek something else. But saving faith always comes back. It always seeks him and him alone. Jeremiah 29, 11, right? What a beautiful verse. I'm going to read it real quick. i got it bookmarked here, but it's a bumper sticker verse, isn't it? It says, I know the, thought, the plans I have for you. And we claim that verse, but look at 12 and 13. Then you shall call upon me and shall go and pray unto me, and I will hearken unto you. And you will seek me and find me when you search for me with all your heart. And Christian, that is the response that you are supposed to have of faith. Your faith should result in this kind of behavior where you seek him alone because you said this world has nothing for me and you've embraced him. You're not letting go to embrace anything else. Him alone. Saving faith seeks. And what does it seek? According to verse 15, it seeks God. It says, and truly if they had been mindful of that country from which they came out, but they're not. They left all that. Their, fo- their gaze is fixed and focused on Jesus and eternal life with him. They've traded, uh, they've traded dirt for diamonds. Why would you go back for more dirt? And so they're mindful not of that land from which they came out. And if they were, they could have had the opportunity to return, but they're not. They're fixed and focused on him and heaven and what he offers. And this is possible because saving faith uh, doesn't just see and is persuaded and embraces and confesses and doesn't just seek new things. It seeks those things because it savors new things. It has new appetites. I hope that's true of you. It has new desires. It has new values that are very different from that Ur of Chaldees which you were called out of. It savors new things. Saving faith says only God can satisfy. That's it. I'm done with messing with things that don't. Only God can satisfy. It says, I will gladly leave this world to keep embracing him and to not let go of that embrace. And the reason for that is, is because if you are a Christian, if you've uh, expressed saving faith in Christ, what he uh, has done is you are designed uh, for something very different. All right, your design is for what it says here is a better country. Verse 16, but now they desire a better country. Both your design and your desire are for a better country. I like uh, C.S. Lewis. I like his quotes and his books. I've never watched his movies. I'm sorry, Teddy. He gives me a hard time about that all the time. You've never watched The Lion, Witch, and the Wardrobe? I haven't. All right, but he's got some pretty incredible quotes, and one of them that really motivates me is this. It says, if I find in myself desires um, which this world cannot satisfy, the most logical explanation is that I was made for another world. Christian, you were made for another world. Quit trying to find satisfaction out here. You won't. It's a waste of time. It's a waste of effort that stops God from getting glory and stops you from getting good, no matter what Satan tells you, because he's telling you quite the opposite. You were made for something different. You're designed for something better, a better country. And so your desire is to be for a better country, and that's what is expressed here. But now they desire a better country. It's very difficult because, Christian, all three of us live in a world where, uh, in a a sense, we interact with three different worlds. We're here in Dublin, right? Alive. You and me are alive. We live here. 
All right, but we also have this other world where it's, um, it's the Holy Spirit in us, and it's this right here, this beautiful thing called the church that um, reminds us that this isn't our home, that we're going somewhere else, and then we are to be living for that other world there. And so our time is supposed to be spent in those first two worlds to make an impact on that only one that matters. But if you're like me, I find myself often uh, spending too much time in that first one without any impact on that other one, and that ought not be. And sometimes I forsake this, that second one, this world right here. And look, um, we're to be in the world and not of it. We're to make an impact there. And we're supposed to, to love it in the sense of trying to, to bring others to treasure Jesus Christ just as you and I have. But um, we, we are not supposed to love it in the same way that the world loves, uh, loves the things of the world. I love uh, the United States. I love outdoors. My, 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 my social media things are mostly like, wow, that's a really good quote that moved me, and I'll try to share it with others. Uh, but if it's not that, it's usually me and Moses trampling around uh, Bladen County in the woods. And I love this country. And I love the world God's created. It's amazing. I love uh, North Carolina. That's why I stayed here. The Army might have brought me here, but it was the beauty of the place and the wonderful people. We we're like, hey, we're going to stay put. And uh, I love Bladen County even. I do. I love Bladen County. I've been in other counties. I like this one. I love Dublin. I never was in Dublin before I ever came here. I mean, I have. I was going to the beach, and it's like, oh, peanuts, and then I was over, you know. Um, but I was like, wow, I've been missing out. I love Bladenboro, Craig Lynn. i never been to Bladenboro. I lived in Bladen County for 14 years. But according to him, I'm on the wrong side of the river. I've never been there. Um, but I love this place. I do. But um, not compared to that. Not compared to what's available for me. I'll give you one more C.S. Lewis quote. I promise the last one, but it's a good one, right? It says, our Father refreshes us on our journey, our pilgrimage, our sojourning. He refreshes us with some beautiful inns, inns, hotels, motels. He doesn't ever encourage us to make them home or to mistake them for home. They're not, right? So thank God for what he's given you, but don't see it like that. And what's beautiful is it says at the end of verse 16, he's not ashamed to be their God. What's the difference of or the opposite of being ashamed? It says he is not ashamed. What's the opposite of being ashamed? Being proud. It says he's proud to be our God. It doesn't say he's proud like so much of you. Right? He says he's proud to be your and my God. Because you know what happens when we live this life, when we see him and we're persuaded and we embrace him and we confess him, when we see that and when we live that out and we say only you can satisfy who gets the glory? He does, 100% of it. That's the way it's supposed to be. That's why he created us. That's why he recreated us. That's his purpose. It's an awesome thing, and he's proud of us because of that. Look, it's an essential chapter, and as we close here, uh, I'd encourage you, um, has God called you to go out? If not, today he's calling you to go out. If you've never trusted Jesus Christ in, as your Savior, do it today. On the back of our bulletin, we have a very clear uh, typically, it's usually expressed in a prayer. At some point, you have to tell God you need this, and you receive it from him. All right? And this is actually, I know of a person who, who got saved by sitting in a service, reading this, and praying this, confessing it to God in his own words, saying, this is what I need. I need you and you alone. I'm turning from everything else. If you need to come down, if you have more questions, you want to talk to me, if you want to sit there in your seat and pray this prayer, I encourage you to give your life to Christ. By faith, start following him. All right, Christian, uh, he has called you to go out, and he's called you to go on. Has there been a, a hitch in that giddy-up where you're not going on quite as much? 
Has something else distracted you? Have you let go when you embrace, right? Who lets go first? Probably me, right? But um, have you let go? Have you let go? Have you leaving God in a side hug and trying to bring something else over? Don't do that. Wrap your arms around him. Saving faith embraces him and him alone. You've taken hold of him. If you've confessed him, have you found yourself mindful of the country which you came out of? Don't be. Fix your eyes on him and him alone. See him. Seek him. Christian, savor him. Savor him. All right. As we close, time is up.